1949, she arrived in New York City looking for a life that her home of Monroeville, Alabama couldn't offer. Born on April 28, 1926 as Nell Harper Lee, she had always been different than her peers and therefore had more often than not found herself as an outsider. Famously, she did befriend future writer Truman Capote when he visited family in Monroeville during the summers from 1928 until 1934. Capote would later have an impact on Lee throughout her life, but it was her masterpiece of a novel which made the biggest splash. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, dedication, and the righteous. I am your host, Jason Nemore Hardin, and on this episode, we're taking a deep dive into Harper Lee and her groundbreaking novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Until I feared I would lose it, I never loved to read. One does not love breathing. End quote. As every newcomer to New York knew, the giant city had riches worth having, but at the time of Nell's arrival, there was practically no place to live. No vacancy signs were everywhere. The wartime housing shortage hadn't yet ended, and apartment dwellers weren't budging because rent controls ensured that they already had the best deals they could get. Nevertheless, Nail managed to find an apartment, although without hot water, at 1539 York Avenue between East 81st and 82nd Streets in a pleasant neighborhood seven blocks east of Central Park and a block and a half west of the East River on the east side of Manhattan. Nell needed a job, of course, and the first one she landed was in a bookstore. At least she might meet writers there, she thought. But she discovered that unpacking books, shelving them, and ringing up sales was far from the literary life she'd expected. It didn't help that the pay was low as well. Things began looking up financially in 1950 when she took a position as a ticket agent at Eastern Airlines. Then she moved over to British Overseas Air Corporation because employees could fly to Britain at a discount, an adventure she liked to dream about. In the evening, she sat down at the wooden door she was using for a huge desk and wrote. At first, the noise of the city was hard to shut out, taxis blowing their horns, trucks, fire engines, and radio shows squawking through open windows. On sultry nights, people sat outside smoking and talking until late. With time, however, she was able to ignore the noise and settle into her writing. It wasn't much, but at least it was a beginning. Breaking her ties with Monroeville was not easy, however. Her mother's health was poor and continued to decline. The burden of shuttling her mother to doctor's appointments had fallen on her older sister Alice because her brother Edwin and sister Louise were married with children. Her father was 70 years old and simply not up to it. Using her vacation time from work, Nell went home as often as she could. During what would be her last hospital visit on June 2nd, 1951, her mother died. Nell was only 25, not adult enough yet to have resolved the biggest emotional mystery of her upbringing, 
which was why her mother had practically ignored her. The family had barely begun to recover from the passing of Mrs. Lee when they would suffer a second tragedy that staggered them. Six weeks after the death of their mother, big brother Edwin died at the age of 30. He had been recalled to duty for the Korean War. During one hot day following a vigorous game of softball at Maxwell Airfield near Montgomery, he sank into his bunk in the officer's quarters to rest. The next morning, he was found dead. The autopsy revealed a cerebral hemorrhage. Nell returned to New York and continued the routine of working at British Overseas Air Corp during the day and writing at night. It was a rather lonely life as she hadn't made any friends as of yet. There was a party-loving bunch of ex-Alabamians living in New York, but they thought she was rather boring. She made an appearance at these gatherings from time to time, often accompanied by her friend, Truman Capote, who had lived in the New York area since his mother's remarriage. Now, if you're interested in learning more about Capote, I suggest you check out our debut episode. It was through Truman that she finally made two close friends. It was the autumn of 1954 during rehearsals of the Broadway musical House of Flowers at the Alvin Theater on West 52nd Street. She wouldn't have normally found herself in the wings of a theater, but Truman brought her along. He had co-written the play script and lyrics with Harold Arlen, who was also the composer of Over the Rainbow for The Wizard of Oz. As Truman's tag-along friend for the day, she was able to listen to run-throughs of songs and dance numbers for the show. Helping to freshen up some of the lyrics was another young arrival on the New York art scene, Michael Martin Brown. With his wife, Joy, and two small sons, Michael lived in a late 1800s two-story townhouse on East 50th Street, dominated by his ebony grand piano. Since Nail lived only a 10-minute subway ride north of the Browns, Michael invited her over to meet his wife. This soon sparked a deep friendship. By the time 1956 rolled around, Nell was still working at British Overseas. More than half a dozen years had slipped by since her arrival in New York, and not much had changed in her life. It had become customary for her to spend Christmas with Michael and Joy Brown before or after a visit to Monroeville. They wouldn't exchange expensive gifts as was customary as they knew that Nell couldn't afford them. Instead, they had introduced a game that was based on giving the least expensive, though cleverest, gift. Nell was particularly satisfied that year as she had found a postcard portrait for Michael and a used book of witty sayings for Joy. With pride, she handed out her gifts, and then she waited. And she waited. Nothing came her way. The Browns, smiling to themselves, let her wait a little longer. Finally, Joy said, We haven't forgotten you. Look on the tree. Poking out from the branches was a white envelope addressed, Nell. Inside was a note, Dear Nell, you have one year off from your job to write whatever you please. Merry Christmas. She asked what it meant, unable to wrap her head around what she thought it meant. They told her to total up what it would cost for a year to stay home and write full time. That sum was their gift. She went to the window, stunned by the day's miracle, she later recalled. She would have to carefully budget the Browns' gift of money, but it was enough to pay rent, 
utilities, and groceries. She quit her job at the airline, and soon her schedule fell into place. Out of bed in the late morning, a dose of coffee, and then to work all day long until midnight sometimes. All she needed was paper, pen, and privacy. Under this regimen of discipline, her output soared. Six months later, she arrived at the offices of publisher J.B. Lippincott & Co. for an appointment to discuss her novel. With the help of a husband and wife pair of agents, Annie Laurie Williams and Maurice Crane, she submitted a manuscript for a novel titled Atticus, which later became To Kill a Mockingbird. The editors talked to her for a long time about Atticus, explaining that, on the one hand, her characters stood on their own two feet, They were three-dimensional. On the other hand, however, the manuscript had structural problems. It was more a series of anecdotes than a fully conceived novel. They made a number of suggestions about how to address their concerns. Turning her head back and forth to acknowledge the remarks from this round-table dissection, she obediently kept nodding and replying in her gentle southern accent, Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. She assured them she would try. Finally, they wished her luck on a revision and hoped to see her again. One of the editors, all of which were men except for one, Teresa von Hohoff, was particularly taken by Nell's writing. Preferring to go by the less stern-sounding Tay Hohoff, she told Nell that her first draft was clearly not the work of an amateur. She found it hard to believe that Nell was in her early thirties and had waited for so long to approach a publisher. At the end of the summer, she resubmitted her manuscript to Tay. It was better, but still not yet right. Tay would later say, obviously, a keen and witty and even wise mind had been at work, but was the mind that of a professional novelist? There were dangling threads of plot. There was a lack of unity a beginning, a middle, an end that was inherent in the beginning. Nevertheless, Tay was convinced that Nell's willingness to accept criticism meant the book could be molded into shape. To her great surprise, in October, Lippincott offered her a contract with an advance of a few thousand dollars so she could continue writing full-time. She was elated and offered to begin paying back the Browns their Christmas loan, as she insisted on calling it, but Michael more experienced about the ways of publishing, recommended that she wait. As editor and author got down to the business of working together, Tay discovered that Nell's speaking and writing voices were very similar, funny, subtle, and engaging, perfectly suited for the novel with a southern setting she wanted to write. Tay encouraged Nell to keep writing in that vein about Monroeville and its people, but as the Lippincott editors tried to explain, a short story Even a series of short stories with the same setting and main character is different from a novel. A short story usually hangs by one incident or revelation. A novel, however, needs an overarching story deep and big enough to encompass everything else, especially the ongoing development over time of related characters and themes. The engine of this unifying story has to include continuing tension arising from a major conflict as well, enough to keep the reader turning the novel's pages. What story could Nell write about? Tay wanted to know that could pull everything else together. 
Quote, so many writers don't like to write. I like to write, and sometimes I'm afraid I like it too much, because when I get into work, I don't want to leave it, and as a result, I'll go for days and days and days without leaving my house. End quote. For many years, ever since the publication of To Kill a Mockingbird in 1960, many readers, teachers, and scholars have assumed that Nell Harper Lee chose to tell, by way of her novel, a version of the infamous Scottsboro Boys trials of 1931 to 1937. That is, however, most likely wrong. Here's a quick summary of the Scottsboro Boys story for those who aren't familiar. They were teenagers, none older than 19. Nine young black men accused of raping two white girls in boxcars on the Southern Railroad freight run from Chattanooga to Memphis as the train crossed the Alabama border on March 25, 1931. The public was fascinated by the story because of its sheer ugliness. The jury found all of the accused guilty. The judge sentenced eight of the nine defendants to death, with the exception of a 12-year-old who was considered too young to die. During a second trial ordered by the United States Supreme Court, four of the accused were released after all charges against them were dropped. Eventually, all of the Scottsboro boys were paroled, freed, or pardoned except for one who was tried and convicted of rape and given the death penalty four times. He escaped from prison in Alabama and fled to Detroit. After his arrest by the FBI in the 1950s, the governor of Michigan refused to extradite him to Alabama. In a 1999 letter to Hazel Rowley, author of Richard Wright, The Life and Times, Nell said that she did not have so sensational a case as the Scottsboro Boys in mind. Most likely, she used a crime that shocked the readers of the Monroe Journal when she was a child and her father was editor-publisher of the newspaper. As this story goes, on Thursday, November 9, 1933, the Monroe Journal reported that one Naomi Lowry told authorities that a black laborer, Walter Lett, had raped her the previous Thursday near a brick factory south of Monroeville. Despite both coming from similar backgrounds of poverty, Naomi was white, and her word meant more than a black laborer's. Walter desperately protested that he didn't know his accuser and that he was working elsewhere during the time of the assault. The jury returned to the courtroom with its guilty verdict and fixed the punishment at death by electrocution. However, the verdict didn't sit well with some of the leading citizens of Monroeville and the county at large. Objections reached the State House in Montgomery and on May 8th, the Alabama Board of Pardons and the governor granted a stay of execution and then reset the date of execution. Then Walter Lett's sentence was changed from death in the electric chair to life in prison. But it was too late. Walter had been incarcerated on death row in Kilby Prison near Montgomery, and while he waited his turn to die three different times, he suffered a mental breakdown and was declared mentally insane. On July 30th, Walter arrived at Searcy Hospital for the Insane in Mount Vernon, Alabama, where he remained confined until he died of tuberculosis in August of 1937. The potential of Walter Lett's trial to inspire sympathy and its power to cast light on a racist judicial system in a small town made it the better choice for Lee's novel than the Scottsboro Boys' trials. 
Moreover, she knew the details of it well. In her imagination, she could see the hero, the attorney in charge of a fictionalized version of Walter's defense, fitting inside the Monroe County Courthouse with ease. She had seen him there many times. It was her father. In fact, Mr. Lee had defended two blacks accused of murder in November 1919. He was just a 29-year-old attorney with four years' experience at the time. He did his utmost, but lost, as he was destined to given the times and both his clients were hanged. He never took another criminal case. As a writer, Nell could use this episode in her father's life to create a character, Atticus Finch, who could defend someone similar to Walter Lett, the character Tom Robinson. By using her father as the model for Atticus, his virtues as a humane, fair-minded man would be honored. With the major elements for her novel in place, she began work on To Kill a Mockingbird in the winter of 1957. As any successful novelist must do, she needed to create a convincing landscape for her reader to enter. So the setting of To Kill a Mockingbird is Macomb, Alabama, a town similar to Monroeville during the Great Depression of the 1930s. Her time frame is a three-year period in Macomb between the summer of 1932 and Halloween night 1935. Truman Capote later said the first two-thirds of the book, the portion about Scout, Dill, and Jim, most likely based on Nell, Truman, and the combination of Nell's brother Edwin and Truman's cousin Jennings trying to coax Boo Ratley out of his house, are quite literal and true. To populate the streets of Macomb, she thought back on the inhabitants of Monroeville in the early 1930s. Officials, merchants, churchgoers, and even the local ne'er-do-wells. After the novel was published, some folks believed they recognized themselves and neighbors. Truman made no bones about telling friends. Most of the people in Nell's book are drawn from life. An interesting twist about To Kill a Mockingbird is that there are two first-person narrative voices. The first is Jean Louise Finch, nicknamed Scout. She talks, thinks, and acts like a six to nine-year-old girl, albeit a very bright one, who perceives her world and the people in it as only an insatiably curious and talkative child could. The second narrator is Scout as well, now an adult looking back on events with the benefit of hindsight. Sometimes the voices will alternate. It may be that Nell had trouble deciding which point of view was better. She rewrote the novel three times. The original draft was in the third person. Then she changed to the first person and later rewrote the final draft, which blended the two narrators who live both in the present of the novel and looking back in time. In addition to her struggles with the novel's point of view, the effort of making progress on the story was so awful she almost gave up. A perfectionist, she was more of a rewriter than a writer and pushed herself to the brink of what she could create. Tay concurred with her about changing the title to To Kill a Mockingbird from Atticus and about Nell calling herself Harper Lee. She never liked it when people mispronounced her name, Nellie. Tay's main concern, however, was the structure of To Kill a Mockingbird. In her view, Nell, well... Harper Lee, needed, quote, professional help in organizing her material and developing a sound plot structure. 
After a couple of false starts, the storyline, interplay of characters, and fall of emphasis grew clearer, and with each revision, there were many minor changes as the story grew in strength and in her own vision of it, the true stature of the novel became evident. Even now, more than 60 years after To Kill a Mockingbird appeared, the rumor persists that Harper Lee didn't write the novel herself. Truman Capote, it is rumored, wrote large portions, or maybe all of it. But given his inability to keep anyone's secrets, it's highly unlikely that he wouldn't have claimed right of authorship after the novel became famous. He did say, which she never denied, that he read the manuscript and recommended some edits because it was too long in places. But it is without question that the hard work of creating To Kill a Mockingbird fell squarely on Lee. Nevertheless, one cold night in New York City, the effort of writing and rewriting almost got the better of her. She was seated at her desk in her apartment on York Avenue, rereading a page in her typewriter over and over. Suddenly, she gathered up everything she'd written, walked over to the window, and threw the entire draft outside into the snow. The manuscript of what would become one of the most popular novels of the 20th century landed in the slush. Pages of it blew down an alley. Then she called Tay and tearfully explained what she'd done. Tay told her to march outside immediately and retrieve the pages. They had worked too hard to give up at this point. Feeling exhausted, she bundled up and went outside into the darkness. Knowing that she could never be happy doing anything else other than being a writer, she accepted that To Kill a Mockingbird, for better or worse, would be her first novel. How little did she know? Within a few weeks after the release of To Kill a Mockingbird in July of 1960, the novel hit both the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune list of top 10 bestsellers. Reviewers from major publications found themselves enchanted by it. Such praise brought her unbroken, dizzying joy. Positive reviews meant that she had talent. She had been right to leave Alabama 10 years earlier and go to New York with the dreamy notion of becoming an author, right to seek out the publishing world, right to quit a low-paying job so she could write full-time. And she proved that she could withstand the rigors of first drafts, criticism, and rewriting without becoming discouraged. In fact, it seemed to have tapped into the important concerns of the era, the growing national interest in civil rights for blacks, the appeal of a life set in simpler times, and the need on the part of Americans to see themselves as justice-loving in the face of Soviet-style communism. To Kill a Mockingbird struck a chord with readers. She received a torrent of requests for interviews and book signings. Sacks of fan mail arrived at Lippincott Publishing. Truman wrote to friends, Poor thing, she is nearly demented. Says she gave up trying to answer her fan mail when she received 62 letters in one day. I wish she could relax and enjoy it more. In this profession, it's a long walk between drinks. Most of all, she was grateful that her father lived to witness this triumph. A perceptive newspaper reporter had remarked that To Kill a Mockingbird is written out of Harper Lee's love for the South and Monroeville, but it is also the story of a father's love for his children and the love they gave in return. 
This, it seems, comes nearest to her true reason for writing the novel. It was a tribute to her father, the book's hero, the courageous but humble attorney, Atticus Finch, was a portrait of Mr. Lee done in generous, loving strokes. To Kill a Mockingbird won the Pulitzer Prize and is still lauded as one of the most important novels ever published to this very day. From the time of the publication of the novel until her death in 2016 at the age of 89, she granted almost no requests for interviews or public appearances and, with the exception of a few short essays, published nothing further until 2015 when Go Set a Watchman was published. Although it was initially promoted as a sequel by its publisher, it is now accepted to be a first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird, with many passages in that book being used again. As usual, let me leave you with a final quote from one of the greats. I wanted you to see what real courage is. Instead of getting the idea that courage is a man with a gun in his hand, it's when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway and see it through, no matter what. End quote. Thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page at House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. As a final note, we'd like to include that our main source for this episode was the book I Am Scout, the biography of Harper Lee by Charles J. Shields. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemoorharden, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Nemoorharden.